All right. Well, last week, just by way of reminder, maybe you were not here, or just I know it's been a little while, um, of where we were, we were looking at this, what Jesus called a new command to the apostles there, that they love one another. And he says that you love one another as I have loved you. And we spent some time looking at those one another passages, kind of seeing how that concept was worked out in the epistles, how the apostles really command or instruct us on how we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. And he said that by that, by doing that, by that love that we have within the church, the world will know that you are my disciples, that we are followers of the Lord Jesus. Now, of course, that love is not just something we keep within the church, right? but that was his emphasis, that it was not the love, first and foremost, that we have outside of the walls that we as we do good deeds and love the world, but it was the love that they would see within us. And that love, of course, then overflows outside of the body of Christ. But as Jesus was saying those words, something caught the ear of the Apostle Peter. And he is concerned in this moment, alarmed even, at what Jesus just said. So why don't we look now, and Lord willing, we're going to finish this chapter. We're in verse 36 of John 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's go to the Lord for prayer and ask his help. Lord, we do come to you again, and we recognize our need for you. We recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing, that apart from you, we have nothing. So we ask that now, by your Spirit and by your grace, that you might minister to us, that you might nourish and feed and strengthen and challenge our souls today. We pray that your word would go forth with great boldness, but with great compassion and love. Pray that you would keep me from any falsehood, any error. Pray that you would give your church great confidence in you and your word. Whatever comes our way, whatever trials may come, whatever we face in life, just uh, corporately as a body or individually as Christians and as families, may our hope always be anchored in Christ. And I pray that in his name. Amen. Well, why is it that good men fall? Why is it that Bible-believing, Christ-exalting men and women so often seem to fall away from the Lord? Sometimes they fall into sin, into grievous sin. Sin that we see that devastates families, that devastates ministries. Um, there are many, a public Christian that we could talk about today that has fallen and not all that distant times. Men that people looked to and, and, and trusted only to fall into grievous sin. And as we look at their lives, maybe from the outside, we might ask the question, how did you get there? Right? How did you go from faithful to falling away into grievous sin? Certainly there are many steps in between that get a person to that point. But sometimes, as we'll see today, we see a person fall away and deny Christ, either temporarily like Peter does or permanently as some do. 
Maybe it's peer pressure in our day, peer pressure of not being accepted by the larger culture, right? As we see in our day, um, biblical truth and God's standards and the standards of the world are just more and more opposed from one another and distant from one another. There is pressure from outside of the church that, that we are uh, being more and more marginalized. Maybe it's fear of the ramifications of being a follower of Jesus, the stuff that may come. I want to look at this text today, and I want to see from the life of the Apostle Peter three warnings, three warnings that might keep us from, from falling. And also, though, I want to close with three reasons that we can plant our hope firmly in Christ. So three warnings from the life of Peter, and then three reasons to plant our hope firmly in Christ. So back to the text. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus just got done saying, let me, let me just read that for the context. He said, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Right? Simon Peter kind of jumps in there, interrupts him and says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, Jesus says some things that we often read and we say, how do these guys not understand? Right? How, do they, how do they not get that he was going to die? But I want to be charitable with the apostles. Jesus says some confusing stuff, does he not? I mean, he says that he is a door. He says that he's a shepherd that is looking after sheep. He says that he is light of the world. He says that he is true bread, right? He tells like thousands of people, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be my disciple. And what happened after that? They all left. You know, who can, who can, who can do these things? I mean, what is this guy talking about, right? Jesus says some difficult stuff that I would imagine there were times that the apostles would kind of sit back and say, what, what is he, is he serious? Is that true? Is he speaking literally? What is he saying? But here he's pretty straightforward, right? I'm, I'm leaving, I'm, I'm departing. And Peter heard this, and he's troubled by it. He's, these guys have been with their master for three years. And I think as we saw briefly last week, I think this statement of Christ has two fulfillments. Firstly, he's going to the cross. That is in his immediate future. In a day or so, he will be arrested, turned over to the authorities, and sent to the cross to be crucified. And this is the climax of his earthly ministry. This is what he came to do, ultimately. This is something that he has to go at alone. Peter cannot go. The disciples cannot follow. Only Jesus can be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Only Jesus can be that suitable sacrifice is going to satisfy God's demand for justice and righteousness. Only Jesus is able to bear the weight of God's wrath against sin and not be utterly destroyed by it. And only Jesus is the one that can reveal God perfectly, display God to fallen creatures. So this is something that he will go at alone. But did you notice that he said, now, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. It seems to me this might be a veiled uh, reference to Peter's death. Uh, if you would just briefly turn to John 21. 
very last chapter of the book of John. So Peter has just been beautifully restored by Christ after his denial of him. And we see here in John chapter 21 and verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. Interesting kind of statement, a bit confusing, but John inserts a little comment to help us know what's going on here. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So that's all we have in Holy Scripture in regards to the death of Peter. As far as inspired revelation, that's all we have. But it has been passed down through church history, through the church fathers, by tradition. And tradition says that Peter actually was crucified as well. And tradition says that he refused to be, to be crucified as Christ was. He asked to be crucified upside down because he, he did not see himself worthy to die the same way that his Lord died. And if you think about what is the, the death uh, where someone dies where their arms are, are stretched out, but it is, it is the death of the cross. But Jesus says, you will follow me eventually. And maybe it's a veiled, it's a veiled reference to his coming death as well. But certainly he also, he speaks of the cross, but he also speaks of glory. Right? Jesus is going to depart from this earth. He's going to leave his disciples and they're going to be on their own. At least he won't be there physically. Certainly the Spirit will be with them. So eventually Peter and every other saint that ever believes in Christ will follow Jesus into glory. I think we've got to say amen, amen to that. <laughs> Amen, that one day we will leave this wretched place, right? This broken body and this sinful world that we live in, and sinful hearts that we have, and we will one day be in the very presence of God. And as he's instructing Peter here, he lays down this kind of loving but very straightforward and strong correction or rebuke. He says that this night you will deny me. Not once, not twice, but three times. Before the morning even dawns, before the sun even comes up and the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Now, how can a man go from boldly proclaiming his allegiance to Christ to denying him three times in only a matter of hours? Now, let me just say up front, this is not a message uh, to bash Peter. I think oftentimes we do that, you know, say stuff about Peter um, but really, it's just lessons learned for all of us. I think things that we can see, warnings. But the truth is this, I believe. The truth is that every Christian has the potential to fall. Right? We all have the potential to fall into sin, to, to deny the Lord as Peter does. And really, I think the more naive we are to this, the more ignorant we are to this reality, the more susceptible we are to succumb, it, succumb to it. So... What can we learn from the Apostle Peter? Three warnings from the life of Peter and, and a, a warning again that, that may have led to his fall. How can we learn and avoid such things? Number one, he has an overconfidence in himself. An overconfidence in himself. Notice Jesus here is, is, is telling him he's going to pardon. Peter boldly, triumphantly proclaims, I will die for you. I will give my life for you. And in those words, we kind of hear this, 
this confidence in self. I will, I can, I am able to do it. Now in the world, of course, this sort of confidence, even a, a boastful kind of confidence, is, is highly esteemed in our day, is it not? That we need to have this, this radical self-confidence. I can do it. I can build. I am strong. I don't need anybody else. You know, we are rugged individualists as Americans. We, I build my own fortune, my castle, and no one else. I don't need anyone else. Certainly we want to have confidence. But if we're walking around with no self-confidence whatsoever, we're going to be in some trouble. But I think our confidence needs to be directed Properly, it needs to be grounded really in Christ, in His strength, right? His power, His ability—not my own, but in but in God's. And Proverbs, I think, speaks to this wrong thinking or having an overconfidence in ourselves. In Proverbs 16, and I think I have these verses listed. So if you're trying to like anticipate where I'm going, or if I don't, if you notice I'm not waiting. Sometimes I'm just kind of going for it. That's why uh, they're there. Proverbs 16, 18, you probably know this verse. It says that pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And that haughty spirit, we hear that mindset of, I, I got this. No, watch out, I'm good. I don't need your help. I don't need your wisdom. I'm in control. I have it all together. But the author of the Proverbs, whether it's Solomon or whoever, seems to be saying that an overestimation and one's strengths and abilities often leads to our destruction. That a haughty spirit, an overabundance of self-confidence, is a recipe for disaster. Think about when Peter walked on water. Now, part of this confidence is probably why he was bold enough to get out of that boat. right? But what happened when he took his eyes off of Christ? He sunk, right? He fell. He was, he was in that storm. And it seems that maybe here, in one way, he has again taken his eyes off of the Lord. He has forgot just how reliant he needs to be upon Christ, just how reliant he is upon his strength. And this forgetting that in this moment really leads to his eventual uh, denial of Christ. That in that toughest moment, his own strength and his own courage fails him. So the first thing we see from Peter is an over confidence in self. And I think for us too, we can we have a temptation there to forget our daily need for the strength and grace of Christ. We are tempted to forget that all of our salvation, that all of our sanctification is because of Him. That our continued faithfulness and walking with the Lord day in and day out cannot be done apart from His strength in keeping us and preserving us. Secondly, I think in Peter, we might see a lack of self-awareness. A lack of self-awareness. Now, Peter might be the type of person, maybe there's some in, in the room that would share this trait, that he's the type of guy that, that speaks or acts and then thinks. You ever, you ever been there? <laughs> just blurt it out, just, just jump and just do something and then... Oh, that is not what I thought was going to be the outcome of that. As soon as the words come out of your mouth, you're trying to you know, grab them back in. And, and no! <laughs> we see uh, right here, just this bold assertion, right? Oh, I will die for you. I'm willing to go 
to the stake. I'm willing to give my life for you right here, right now. There's another time where Jesus speaks of his coming death. And you remember, you remember Peter stands up and, and, and rebukes Christ? <laughs> Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You remember that scripture? And what, is, what, is, what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Yeah, wow. I find it ironic, and I, this is just an aside, but I find it ironic that the Roman Catholic Church uses that scripture to say that Jesus is here calling Peter to be the first pope. Right? So, so just above that, Peter says, you are the, the, let me get it right, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I tell you, you are Peter, on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the Roman Catholic Church says that, well, that was when he was appointed to be the first pope. But then another breath later, Jesus is calling him Satan. I mean, it's just kind of ironic if that's really what is going on, that he is exalting Peter, and then he tells him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. You are not seeing... You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It just seems like an ironic situation there. I think Jesus is speaking of Peter's confession that on this rock, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation and rock that the church will be built upon. But Peter is quick to speak. He's quick to kind of blurt out, maybe without thinking. There's another time we read not all that long ago in John 13, where Jesus is going around serving his disciples, and he girds up his loins, and he's washing their feet. And remember, he gets to Peter, and Peter says, you will never wash my feet. And then what does Jesus say? If I don't wash you, you have no part of me. And what does Peter? Oh, my head and my hands. Lord, all of me. Come on. I, I want to be washed. And then, of course, in the garden, just after this encounter that we're reading today, not, not long after, they go into the garden. And the, the men come to arrest Pete, uh, Jesus, and what does Peter do? He pulls out his sword, and he starts swinging his sword around, lops off the servant's ear. I mean, you know, that's pretty close to the head. Um, just kind of responding, you know, and Jesus would say, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? You know, we're not, we're not soldiers. If I wanted, my father would send a legion of, of, of soldiers right now. I think so often when someone falls, we see really a lack of, self-awareness, or, or, or maybe another way to say it, is a lack of our own strengths and weaknesses. Where we're prone to fall, where we're prone to be weak. Maybe he would be better if he was quiet before he blurts out. Or maybe um, he ought to trust Jesus sometimes and take him at his word and not seek to correct him or rebuke him. So often it seems that a fall comes because we do not take the time to examine ourselves to be honest with our weaknesses, to be honest with our tendencies, maybe areas where we are prone to sin. We are pretty good at deceiving ourselves, thinking maybe that we're stronger than we are, not wanting to, to admit our weaknesses. But Paul says, as he writes the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. There's that lack of, of self-awareness, thinking, I've got this, I'm strong, I can do it, I don't need anybody else. And he says, take heed when you think that you're there, 
you're li- you're liable to fall. I've told this story somewhere, but a long time ago I was in a, a service and there was a man preaching, teaching, ministering, and he was a older gentleman. Um, he had come from a background of, of he was a gangbanger in L.A. and had been in gangs and was a heroin addict and all this crazy past that he had. And he told the story of when he got converted and he had got saved by the Lord and he was delivered from his addiction to heroin and he was just over the moon of, of what God had done in his life and the power of Christ and and he had this great idea that he was going to go back to the old neighborhood and he was going to he was going to save everybody. You know, he had the gospel. He was delivered, and he wanted all of his friends, right? Some, some good intentions, good motives there. But this is only about 90 days after he had come to the Lord and after he had been clean. So he goes down there boldly, you know, John the Baptist style. But it was not before long that he was back in doing the same things with his friends. Now, praise be to God, he was truly converted, and it was a stumble, and the Lord delivered him out again. But he, he had said, I had a lack of self-awareness. I didn't realize that I was not as strong as I thought I was, you know. I thought I was saved. I thought all that was behind me. I could never touch it again. But he put himself in a situation that was that was dangerous, and he fell. We need to have an awareness of our own propensity to sin, areas where we might be be weak. I told this story on Wednesday, and maybe it's just a, a matter of public uh, confession, but I have a wife, and, and uh, one of the things that God does when He matches up a man and a woman is He helps us, um, you know, challenge each other when we are not consistent in the things that we say and do. Maybe I can say it like that. But I was up here last week preaching a sermon about loving one another and you first, and I have a lack of self-awareness that when I get hungry, um, a different guy sometimes comes out, right? And I sin when I don't eat. And, and I had not eaten much last Sunday and left here, and everyone went home, and I went to the store, and it took way longer than it was supposed to to get the food. And by the time I came home, little did I know, I had a different guy, you know? And I was, I was rude to him, and I apologize. I love you guys. I was wrong. Um, and my wife says, hey, guy, you know, you just preached that sermon about loving everyone you know, and I eat my food and it's like, oh man, wow, you know, and I've been told multiple times, don't let yourself get too hungry because (laughs) you act different, you know, and I don't want to sin against my wife and my children. So it's a lack of self-awareness. It's a lack of understanding. This is a bad place for me to be. It might be fairly small. It's not a fall from Christ, but I don't want to sin against my own family. I don't want to be a jerk in my home and treat my children different than I would, than I would like to. It would seem often that when people fall, we just don't have a self-awareness. Maybe a person struggles with lust. They would do well not to put themselves in a situation, right, where there is an ability to compromise. If it's stuff on the Internet, not have some accountability. Don't go to those places when there's no one around or give yourself an opportunity to fall in that area. Maybe we struggle with drinking. I don't like to tell ourselves, but I I have it under control, I can handle it. I can I can dabble a little bit, right? I can I can get in there and uh, but we see often that it leads to bigger things or we we indulge ourselves more than we would plan. Maybe you're in a relationship today. And you're not married. And you're trying to be pure before the Lord. 
right? And wisdom might say that I'm not going to put myself in situations where passions can arise and might fall into sin, something I'm trying not to do. Oftentimes, if we would just not put ourselves in a situation or have an awareness of, that wasn't for you. <laughs> I'm smiling over there. Have an awareness, have an awareness of our weaknesses or just opportunities to sin, right? That we would be wise to not. Maybe it was. <laughs> no. But oftentimes when someone falls, I think if we would just have an honest examination of our own hearts, we could often avoid so many situations uh, where these things can't even happen. And in wisdom would say that we would keep ourselves from areas of compromise. And really this is, when we read stuff like this psalm, and we see this all over, this kind of mindset. Uh, psalm 26, verse 2. The psalmist says, Prove me, O Lord, and try me, Test my heart and my mind. You see, there's this desire, you know, purge me of sin. Show me where I'm weak. Shine light in my heart. I want to know. I don't want to fall. I don't want to have malign spots. I don't want to sin against you. I don't want to minimize or justify my weaknesses. I want to see them. Test my heart. Psalm 119, many verses in Psalm 119 that would relate to this, but one is verse 23. David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Again, expose where I may be weak so that I can avoid a disaster, so that I can avoid a sin that I don't want in my life, but that I may not see coming unless the Lord would reveal to us areas that we are weak. And then the Apostle Paul says, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Now, we can take this verse too far. And maybe you've been at a point in your life where you know some Christians in your life that really struggle with assurance, right? Where we are over-examining our lives and saying, Oh man, I, I went three miles over the speed limit. I don't even know if I'm saved anymore. You know, am I... Am I really a Christian that I would do this and this and this? And we're constantly looking at our life and questioning if we are, as Paul says, in the faith. But I think often that's not our tendency. It's the other side, right? Where we say, you can't question anything. Don't talk to me about my life. Don't talk to me about the way I live. Don't talk to me about examining my heart. I made a decision for Jesus at some point in my life, and that's done. And it's not that we look at our faithfulness and God's power in our life to change us, we look back on that one moment where we said something or did something or walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or raised a hand, and we base everything on that when we ought to, as Paul says, examine ourselves, be real about our own life, about our own, be honest with ourselves. I think a serious evaluation and honesty about where we truly stand would often avoid many issues and calamities. Number three Number three, we can learn from Peter, maybe it's things to avoid, is a naive outlook at what the future may hold. A naive outlook at what the future may hold. So for Peter, it was the pressure and persecution that was about to come. Now when Jesus was there, he was good to go. Right? He was confident, he was bold, he was strong. Even as Jesus is getting arrested, he's swinging his sword. Right, But as soon as Christ is taken away, and Peter is in the enemy's camp, 
all of a sudden now out of fear, he won't take a stand for Christ. And if you remember in the story where Peter denies the Lord, it isn't that he has this band of soldiers around him with clubs and torches, but it's just some lady that asks him, you know, are you, are you one of them? Aren't you one of his followers? He's not even really in fear of his life. And he says, no. And she asks him again, right? I don't know the man. And then he even curses and then realizes what he's done. But he, as he's taking this bold stand, I'm going to die for Jesus, he has a naive outlook on what the future may hold when Christ is gone and how difficult it might be to stand without the presence of the Lord. And I'm convinced that many have fallen because they did not count the cost. They did not seriously consider the hardship that might come that is often entailed with, with following Jesus, whether it, be, whether it be struggles and divisions that take place within our families. I've talked to many a Christian that when they came to Jesus, even in America, we're not talking Muslim country, but when they come to Jesus and all of a sudden take a stand for righteousness, right, that people start to get frustrated with you and and certainly we can, be, we can be a little bit over the top at times, right? We can be extremely zealous about other people's sin. But when we start to take a stand for righteousness, sometimes it is in our family where that's the most difficult. And they say, I, I know you. I grew up with you, you knucklehead. What are you, what are you get out of here with all that, right? Sorry, I shouldn't say knucklehead. We, 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 we fail to count the cost or have a naive outlook on what the future may be. Hold. What difficulties may come for following Jesus? Now, we're in a unique, interesting situation today, right? And many think that if Trump sticks around, that things are going to be good, and if he doesn't, things are going to be bad. I personally think that this country is on a trajectory that it has been for many years, and that trajectory is to jettison God and the Bible and biblical truth and biblical morality and get as far away from that as we possibly can. A Trump four years might slow that down a bit, but is it really going to stop this leftward slide that we're having? In the middle of all of that, as a church, corporately, and as Christians individually and in our families, I think we really need to begin to think through issues that may be coming our way. So that when they come, we are prepared to take a stand or to know where it is that we want to take a stand. Where is the line going to be too far that we're not going to be willing to cross? Because if we wait till that day comes, if we take this head in the sand, everything's going to be hunky-dory sort of approach, then when the heat rises, when the temperature goes up, when those times come, we're probably not going to stand. Just a few examples, a few things to think about. And these are all pretty... Minimal. I don't think these are super alarmist sort of things. But right now, COVID-19. Now, I'm not a tinfoil hat guy. There's a real sickness going around that real people get sick from and real people have died from. But I think we would all agree to some degree that this thing has been highly politicized, that states are massively abusing their power, stepping on the Constitution, shutting down economies, ruining people's livelihoods, and what's interesting to me is that, is that certain states that are, have a different political persuasion that are not locking everything down, they're not seeing spikes in the cases. You know, if, um, 
some states are pretty much open right now. And, and, and you would think that they would be blowing up with cases, but it's all pretty much the same across the board. At what point do we say that the government has overstepped their bounds? If there's another lockdown, which looks like there may very well be, do we show it the church again? I think these are things we need to be talking about. Are we ready to take a stand or are we and take the hit that might follow? Right, what about when the government says that it is illegal to say that homosexuality and abortion is sin? Do we stop preaching against those things at that point? Are we going to stand and are we going to be willing to take the hit that might come? What about when the government says, as is happening in other countries, that it is illegal to tell someone that if they're living in sexual sin, that they need to be changed, that they need to repent, that they need to be converted, that it's wrong, immoral, and actually illegal to say that to a person? Do we stop preaching biblical conversion at that point? Do we stop calling people to repent of certain sins or certain lifestyles? Or are we prepared to stand and take the hit that might follow? What about when the government says it's illegal to educate our own children? That we have to send our kids to state-approved schools? Are we going to stand at that point? Or are we going to hand them over? These are small things, right? These are, these are relatively little things that are coming our way very shortly. But these are things that we need to be thinking about. As a church, corporately, what do we want to do? And as Christians individually in our home, Jesus says, now this is, this is more serious stuff, but Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, now there is definitely some debate on the timing of some of these things and what he's speaking of. Um, but he's asked, Jesus is in Matthew 24, in verse 3, tell us when these things will be, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Right, so he's asked, what are the signs of the end of the age? And he says in verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Now it talks elsewhere about families handing over their family members, their loved ones. Now, certainly right now we're not in fear of, of, of death uh, in this country at all, right? Certainly not. But these things don't happen overnight. Right? Persecution by the masses of a specific group of people happens through indoctrination. Right? It didn't happen overnight that the, that the German people were on board with the extermination of the Jews. That happened through indoctrination. That happened through teaching that these people were less than human, less than people unworthy to even live. Now, this culture has been indoctrinated for years that Christians are hateful, narrow-minded bigots that really contribute nothing to society. And the more that is believed, and the more that is accepted, the more we're going to be marginalized, and the more that the masses will be happy to see our rights trample them. So what that means for us, I think, that a naive outlook on the future is a sure recipe for capitulation. It means that we will be bound to something other than the Lord our God. It is a sure recipe if we have this pie-in-the-sky, head-in-the-sand approach that we're going to be swept along with the culture. Or maybe out of fear for the repercussions, we will slowly drift away from biblical truth. We need to be prepared and we need to decide now 
where we want to stand so that when these things come our way, we, we are united. And as we've seen with Peter, we've seen that an overconfidence in self, a, a lack of self-awareness, and a naive outlook on the future may have played into his fall and eventual denial of Christ. Now, if I was just to stop here, you know, there may be reason for much discouragement. So many dangers out there, so many weaknesses in my own flesh. What are we to do? Maybe you're here today and you have, at one point in your life, fallen away from the Lord. Maybe you fell into some grievous temptation or sin. You fell away from Christ for a, for a season. And you did terrible things that you are embarrassed to speak of. Maybe there was a season in your life where you just fell away from Christ, where you just kind of wasn't over major sin. You just kind of walked away and said, don't, don't, don't need you right now, Lord. i got other things going on. And maybe you're here and right now, there is secret sin in your life that you know is wrong, that you know the Lord is convicting you of, that you're keeping from your brothers and sisters even right now. And the question I might ask is, is there any hope for us in all of this? With the stuff that is coming, with the stuff we've done in the past, with things that might be taking place right now in your own life, is there any hope for us? So I want to wrap up with three reasons that we can have much hope in Christ, and this will be much briefer than the previous three. Three reasons that we can have and should have, in the midst of all of this, much hope in Christ. Going back to our text, Jesus is telling Peter, listen, you're going to deny me. Not once, not twice, but three times. You're going to do it tonight. You're not even going to get through the night, and you're already going to fall away from me. And he actually says in a different gospel, when they leave the upper room, he says, tonight all of you are going to fall away. Every last one of you tonight is going to betray me. And he says this on the cusp of going to the cross. And I want to remind you, number one, that Jesus goes to the cross for sinners. And you may say, Pastor, this is, this is elementary. This is obvious. We, we know that. Obviously, Jesus died for sinners. But I want us to remember that He knows our sin. He knows our blasphemies. He knows our failures. He knows our weaknesses. And He went to the cross specifically for those things. It says in Romans that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And beloved, if you today are in Christ, let me remind you that B.C., before Christ, you were ungodly. It's not those people out there, it's us, right? It's two thumbs back at me. Praise be to God that, that we are who we are in Christ, but we were all, apart from Jesus, ungodly people. And while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for those that, would, that hated Him, <clears throat> that mocked Him, that ridiculed Him. He died for those that had blasphemed Him, that had denied His very existence. Sorry, I can't say hate either. But, and it goes on in, in, in Romans 5 that I just read was verse 6. Verse 8 says, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And, and beloved, while you were a sinner, while you were in your sin, at enmity with God, hostile to God, Christ came to you and offered you forgiveness and salvation simply in faith. And this is how He shows His love while we were still sinners. He died. And while we were still sinners, Hostile to God, he offered freedom and forgiveness and salvation in his name. 
Now this should not, this should not encourage us to sin. But quite the opposite, right? Let me just say, I just, I, I just feel compelled to say this. If you're here today and you're living in an unrepentant sin, if there's something going on in your life that, that you're hanging on to, that you have uh, some secret stuff going on in your life that you're keeping from everyone. I know we're in a room of, of, of good, upstanding people, but, but we're sinners, right? If you're living in unrepentant secret sin, the Bible has one word for you. Repent. Flee from that sin. Don't wallow in that filth, but come back to Christ. Bring your sin out in the open. Find a brother or a sister that you love. And grab them that you trust and say, Brother, I'm, I'm struggling right now. Confess it to the Lord and confess it to the body of Christ. Bring it into the light and believe afresh today upon Christ by grace through faith. The fact that He died for sinners is never licensed for us to sin, but it is great hope when we do. Now, it is great hope when we do sin. And beloved, this is why He died knowing our sin, knowing our weakness, and knowing our need. Jesus goes to the cross for sinners. Number two reason that we can have much hope in Christ is that Jesus goes to the cross for failures. Jesus goes to the cross for failures. I mean, look at Peter. Jesus goes knowing that this guy's going to turn his back on Christ just immediately after they depart. While Jesus is there being arrested, Peter is going to deny him. He went to the cross knowing where you would fall. He went to the cross knowing that you would lack strength. He went to the cross knowing that our faith would be weak, that our faith in itself is not enough. And he went to the cross knowing that all of us would fail at times. That we would fail him, we would fail our brethren, we would fail our families at times, we would fall short. But this is why he died because of our failures, because we don't have enough in us, because we're not strong enough. And again, this is not this is not an excuse to not take a stand. It is not an excuse to fail and say, hey, God's forgiven me. But it is sure hope when we do. When we do fall, when we do fail, it is sure hope to know this is why Christ died. He went to the cross for failures, not for success stories. Number three, last reason why we can have great hope in Jesus is because He went to the cross to secure our victory. To secure our victory. As we look at all of the enemies that we have, the world, the flesh, and the devil that are constantly seeking to attack us, to bring us down, to destroy our faith, to take our eyes off of Jesus. As we look at the persecution and hardship that comes with following Jesus, whether it's small things, or whether it's big things, left on our own, we would have reason for much discouragement. Right? If it was just me trying to do this thing on my own and you trying to do this thing on your own. But, but look at Peter. He, Jesus went to the cross knowing that Peter would fail. But he went to the cross also knowing that he was going to restore him. He went to the cross also knowing that he was going to empower him not only to live for Him, but yes, to eventually give His life for Him. Jesus went to the cross to secure our eternal victory. We will have successes in this life, and we will fail. 
But as the song says, the battle belongs to the Lord. Right? The victory is His, and we are in Him, so the victory is ours. Jesus said in John 16, In the world you will have <clears throat> tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And beloved, we have much to hope in and take heart in in the Lord Jesus Christ because we are, we, because we are in Him and He has overcome this world. He is victorious. Right? We have the end of the book. We have the, we, we've, we've, we've spoiled the movie already and we've watched the end, right? Before, some people are weird like that. They read the end of the book before the beginning. Don't do that. That's odd. <laughs> but we know the end. We know the, we know the story and it ends for us. Let me just say lastly, friend, if you're here for whatever reason and you don't know this Jesus, then you do have much reason to be discouraged. You do have much reason to be concerned. Because apart from Christ, we do not have hope. And apart from Christ, we do go at this thing alone. And in our flesh, in our own strength, we will fail miserably. And if you're here today apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, and I Sad to say that you are actually under His judgment right now, under His wrath, because sin brings judgment from God. But the free gift of God in Christ is Christ Jesus our Lord. He offers salvation. He offers forgiveness to any person that believes on Him in faith. You know, there's this lie that our flesh and the world tells us, and it tells us that there is freedom in our sin. That ultimate freedom is human autonomy. That when I can do whatever I want and sin as I please, that that is actually real freedom. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Right? We've all seen probably video or pictures or what have you of a, of a death row inmate or some guy in one of these high security prisons. And they walk like this. Why do they walk like this? They're shackled, right? Yes, they have chains. They have chains on their hand. They have handcuffs shackled to their waist, they have leg irons, and this is all they can do is this little shuffle. And anywhere they go, at any time, they have two COs, if they're in one of these high security places, with them at all times. They can't go anywhere they want at any time without somebody else's permission. A lot of these guys get one hour a day out of their cell. And the lie from sin is that a man like this could walk in these chains and say, look how free I am. Look at this beautiful freedom that I have here on death row, shackled down every day, can't even move without somebody else's permission. That's the lie that sin tells us. But Jesus came to bust those shackles off. Jesus came to bust open the prison doors. And Jesus came to set sinners free. That true freedom, true freedom is the freedom not to sin. True freedom is to live for righteousness. True freedom comes from deliverance. From the Lord, not the freedom to say I'll sin as I want, but the power and ability to say, I'm denying that wretched thing that destroys my life. And friend, there is freedom today to be found in Christ. Believe upon Jesus and live. So we learned much from Peter, maybe some guardrails to help protect us from falling, and we've seen in Christ much reason to firmly plant out hope. May we heed the warnings and may we all cling all the more to Christ. We pray. Lord God, we do, we do thank you that there are many, there are many battles in this life. We will face many more. We have faced some. We will face more. 
But as we said, the battle belongs to you. And you are where our hope is. You are the, the sure uh, place where we can anchor our soul to find much hope and strength. And I pray as questions come about the future, as things surely change in our country and beyond, as the world more and more opposes the Christian faith and the things that we hold dear, would you help us to stand firm? Would you help us to stand with great courage that we would not be shaken when our rights are taken away, when our privileges are taken away, but that we would count it all joy for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we would count as Paul does all of these things as rubbish, that we might know you and the power of your resurrection. We love you, Lord. We thank you that we have all things in you, that our strength comes from you. Encourage us as we depart. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.